You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. How do you feel about teaching private yoga lessons? Whether you love them, feel unsure about them, or have never taught one before, you're going to want to hear Francesca Cervero describe how she built a business teaching 20 private yoga lessons per week. And if you have never thought about teaching private lessons, or maybe think it isn't for you, stick around. Because while I don't think every yoga teacher needs to build their whole business around private lessons, I do think that teaching at least a few private lessons will make you a better yoga teacher. Francesca has been a full-time yoga teacher since 2005, and her teaching is inspired by her training at Ohm Yoga Center, the years she spent as a dancer, and subsequent years she spent in physical therapy. Her teaching is also influenced by her love of Buddhist teachings and a constant curiosity about anatomy and biomechanics. Francesca is in private practice teaching a full schedule of one-on-one clients, She mentors yoga teachers in the science of the private lesson and hosts the podcast, The Mentor Sessions, Support and Strategy for Yoga Teachers. In addition to sharing her How I Built This Story, Francesca shares tons of practical tips and strategies for any yoga teacher who wants to start or improve their ability to teach private yoga lessons. Personally, I don't have the social bandwidth to do one-on-one student with students full-time, 20 hours a week like Francesca does. But I do cherish the private students I currently work with and have worked with in the past. The ability to focus so fully on just one person and the freedom to experiment that comes along with private lessons, I really believe are essential for developing creativity, empathy, and confidence as a yoga teacher. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode, so let's jump right in and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, Francesca. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about privates because I think they're a a very powerful tool for helping our students in a different way than a group class. But before we jump into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got into yoga in the first place, and why you decided to become a teacher. Yeah. I started practicing yoga um, as a young dancer. I was sort of on a professional dancer track. I got a BFA um, in modern dance performance. That's what I studied in college and practiced yoga through much of my time in college and initially decided to take a teacher training, one, because I really wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the practice, but I also was moving from Philly to New York after college and was planning on pursuing a a dance career and needed, of course, like a backup job to kind of keep me going while I was pursuing a dance career and had worked in restaurants in college and really wanted to try to avoid working in a restaurant if possible. And so I thought being a yoga teacher would be a good way to support myself while I tried to be a dancer. So that was obviously naive because um, making a living as a yoga teacher was 
almost as hard as making a living as a dancer. Um, but I, I made my way through. <clears throat> I did my teacher training in the summer of 2005 at Om Yoga, the Cindy Lee Om Yoga lineage, and did start teaching right away that fall. It was quite the hustle to get teaching gigs, but I was in a time in my life when I had access to a lot of hustle. I was 22, so I didn't have a lot of responsibility, caretaking responsibilities or other responsibilities. And all of my friends were doing the same thing. Like we were all hustling. So it just made sense. Um, and, and so I had probably 10 to 12 group classes right away that fall. And I really loved teaching. I think there was a big shift when I took my teacher training from thinking that Yoke, teaching yoga would be like a really cool side gig to feeling very connected to the practice of yoga and the path of a teacher in particular. It felt so different the way I engaged with my practice when I was practicing to be a teacher when I versus when I was just a student. And I know a lot of teachers struggle with that transition. And I did as well in some ways, but for me, I actually felt like studying to become a teacher helped me deepen my studentship. I know some teachers feel like it takes away from their personal practice and from their studentship, which makes sense. I, I think that is common, but I just happened to have the opposite experience where studying to become a teacher really helped me feel connected to the practice in a deeper way. And I loved it. I loved it right away. I was not a very strong teacher when I first started. Like I said, I was really young. I was 22 and had been practicing mostly asana until I got into my teacher training. It took a little bit of time for me to grow and evolve and become a little bit more confident in my teaching. But because I was teaching so much right off the bat, I had a lot of opportunity to to grow and evolve and, and to get a little bit more confident in my teaching. So that's sort of how my teaching journey started. I love what you said about your studentship evolving through the practice of becoming a teacher, because I actually had the same experience where yoga went from being something that's like nice to do and I enjoyed it, it felt good to me, to something that felt really imbued with a lot of meaning. And like my own practice took on more meaning because it became about something bigger than just me. It became about feeding myself and educating myself and, and nourishing myself so that I could help others. And that was a big deal for me too. And it also, that sense of responsibility to my students also, I believe, keeps me coming back to my own practice in a way that I might not have otherwise, you know, like, yeah. yes, it's totally challenging to have a consistent practice over decades. There's so many people I know, for example, who used to teach and no longer teach and no longer practice. Mm, yeah. You know, and it's like, because they lost that identity as a teacher, they lost their practice also. Well, I usually ask this a little bit later on, but I'd love to hear what your personal practice looks like right now. That's what I was just thinking about when you were talking about having a consistent practice. To me, the only way I've been able to have a consistent practice is by having a very, 
wide scope of what I considered to be my yoga practice. I've had long chunks of time when I couldn't practice asana at all and took that time to dive deeper into my meditation practice and my study of philosophy and dharma. And so I'm a little bit in that phase right now. I'm not doing that much asana. I have some stuff going on with my body um, that just makes certainly like a, a more active, rigorous asana practice, just not accessible to me. So I'm not doing that much asana right now, but my meditation practice is, is pretty consistent and really sort of the foundation of my connection to my spiritual practice right now. So even if it's only 10 minutes, usually I try for 15 or 20, I, I manage to sit um, most days. Right now, I think because of all the uncertainty in the world, some stress and anxiety in life. I'm doing more guided meditations. I go through phases with that as well, where sometimes I just do my own sitting practice. Um, and sometimes I feel like I need the support of guided meditations. So I've been doing that a little bit more and that's been really helpful as well. So after you started teaching, you were teaching 12 classes a week. You said you developed your skills. At a certain point in time, you started to specialize in teaching private sessions. So tell me a bit about that transition. When did it happen and what inspired you? What guided you in that direction? Well, it wasn't an intentional choice. I had a friend of mine um, pass down a private client to me. She was sort of tightening up her schedule. She had a thriving studio and she wanted to spend more time there. And so she was letting go of some of the private clients that were too far away or that she didn't want to continue to work with. And so this was pretty, this was like probably January of 2006. So she said, you know, I'd love to connect you with this private client if you want to work with her. She's, it's a pretty easy gig. She's not that interested in yoga. Uh, she just like kind of wants to be able to say she does it, but she won't want to use the full hour and she really just wants to chat. And so it's like kind of easy, just, you know, no big deal. So I didn't know any better. I was like, okay, sure. That sounds fine. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I, I'd love to, to try this and see how it goes. And right away though, I had a different experience. I didn't feel like she was easy to teach. I didn't feel like it was boring. I felt like it was very challenging and very interesting because I had the sense that like the yoga practice had lots of tools that could help her, but I had to figure out how to make them accessible to her. She did sort of on the surface do a lot of chatting, not so much about her practice or her body or her life, but more like almost like celebrity gossip, you know, that kind of thing. And so I would just try to like listen between the lines, like kind of read underneath what was going on with her to figure out a way to use the tools of yoga to offer support. And so that felt like a very creative challenge. And I thought it was really fun. And I think because I didn't come into the practice, I was such a new teacher and I came from a lineage that wasn't very dogmatic. So I had this sense that like, here's this wide, wide scope of practices and teachings. And let me see what works. Like, let me see what's helpful. I didn't have really rigid ideas about this is what a yoga practice has to be. This is where you have to start. 
this is where you have to end. I was just like, there's all these tools, there's all these teachings, let's see what's helpful. And so I got really creative about the way I worked with her. And I think because of that, and I didn't know what I was doing, it was just trial and error, but I, but she got actually much more engaged in her practice. She got much more curious and she started to see progress, physical progress, and that she got stronger because I found a way to kind of get her to be open to working a little bit harder, um, challenge herself a little bit, and a little bit stronger in the way she carried herself as well. She started setting better boundaries with her family around our yoga practice time and things like that. And so it's probably six or eight months after we started working together that she said, you know, this is really helping. She kind of was really noticing the way she just felt different in her life off the mat. And she said that she, she wanted me to teach her best friend. And so she bought her best friend a package of five sessions with me as a birthday present. And the best friend, it was a very different situation. She'd been practicing a very active form of yoga for like 25 years. And she had been a D1 college athlete. So the way I worked with her was quite different, but there was a similar undertone of like, I feel like there's a way to teach her that would help her take the teachings and the tools of yoga and the practices of yoga and have them actually make a difference in her life. I had the sense that she engaged in a lot of her physical practices from a place of like self like loathing, like not being good enough, like pushing herself physically really hard to make up for something. And I understood that I had a little bit of that as a dancer and it was really, really in my, in my yoga practice, but mostly in my teacher training that I had a very, like a 180 switch of engaging, particularly in a challenging asana practice from a place of self-love rather than self-loathing. And it just changed everything about the way asana felt to me. So I wanted to try to teach her in a way that supported that kind of shift. So that's what we did. And again, I would say like in probably six, maybe eight months after that, we'd started working together. She said, you know, this is really helping. Like this is really making a difference. I would love for you to teach my husband. And I was like, sure, that would be great. You know, I'm still teaching now at this point, probably 15 group classes a week, two private clients a week. I haven't made a decision to like specialize in private students. I just was having great success with the two people I was working with and really enjoying it. So that was as far as like the planning had gone, you know? So she said, I would love for you to teach my husband, but he probably won't really like it. He doesn't like yoga. He doesn't like the idea of yoga. I think it'd be good for him, but I, I don't think you'll really like teaching him. I was like, well, what if we just set up one session, see what he thinks, we'll take it from there. So I wanted to figure out a way to connect with him, you know, to figure out what about yoga would make him interested. How do I get him interested and engaged in the practice? And so I was asking about some other physical things he liked to engage in. And he really liked to play golf, but I asked him a few questions about his golf game and it turned out he wasn't very good. Like he had a very high, it's called a handicap in golf. And so I just said like, you know, is that something that you'd think you'd want to work on? He was like, do you think yoga could help? 
And I said, yeah, I think it could for two reasons. One, the more ability you have to twist, the stronger you'll be in your backswing. I don't play golf, by the way, but my dad and brother did. So I kind of like knew a little bit about the game. The deeper your twist, the more clear you are in your twist, the more power and clarity and control you have as you swing through. And even more importantly, it's really a game of mindfulness. If you're not very focused in the present, it's hard to, I think, hit well. He was like, huh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's give this a shot. And I ended up teaching him for all like 10, 11 years that I, 12, let me think about the timing. Yeah, something around 10 years that I was in New York. I saw him twice a week. So he ended up really getting engaged in the practice. The hook was it could help you with your golf game, but it didn't take that long for him actually to just be really uh, engaged in the yoga practice on its own. One thing that started to happen as I was teaching him, again, this is another six, eight months probably, is his golf game did start to improve. So when his golf game started to improve, I got emails from like everybody that worked at his firm and they were like, I would like to work with you. <laughs> so then my practice grew very quickly. The beginning, it was slower. One client, two clients, three clients. And then like pretty quickly within less than a year, I was teaching 25 sessions a week because it was people's friends and coworkers and bosses. And so that just kind of grew quickly from there. So it was never an intentional decision to special, quote unquote, specialize in private students. It was just, I enjoyed it. It was fun. My students enjoyed it. They told their friends and my practice grew from there. What I really love is how you said in the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing because I've heard from so many yoga teachers. Well, I'm kind of interested in teaching privates, but I don't think I'm qualified. I don't think I know enough. So I'd love to hear from you about how your process of working one-on-one -on -one with people evolved from those first few clients where you were kind of like, I'm interested in this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to show up the best I can until this point of feeling like, wow, my client roster is filled and I really, you know, I imagine that you developed some sort of process over time. So I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it was really when I created my teacher training, the science of the private lesson, that I looked back at what I was doing and reverse engineered a process and several frameworks. So I started teaching in 2005. By 2007, 2008, I had like a very full private practice with a waiting list. And I did that for, for many years as I got more private students. I slowly let go of some of my group classes until eventually, <clears throat> I think I just had one group class at the end, but I always had at least one group class on the schedule because it's such a different skill. I didn't want to lose that skill set. So, and I have very happily teach a couple group classes still now today. So I love teaching group classes, but I also love teaching private clients, obviously. So as I was teaching private clients full time, I had lots of teacher friends ask me like how I got so many private clients. And sometimes, and I had teachers like my teachers, people who had been beloved full-time yoga teachers in New York City for 30 years say like, how do you, how do you get so many private clients? You know, like 
people are so flaky, people come and go. Like, what's your marketing secret, basically? And I didn't have a marketing secret because I wasn't doing any marketing. I wasn't on social media. I didn't have a website. I didn't have a business card. I wasn't doing marketing. I just was working with people in a way that made them really care and love the practice. And they committed to it and committed to our work together. So I haven't taught like hundreds or thousands of private clients. When I teach people, I teach them for years. I taught most of my clients in New York until I moved. And I've been in DC now for six years. And a lot of my students I've had for five years, six years. So I haven't had to go out and find new clients all the time because I teach people in a way that makes them want to keep continue our work together. But so as people were saying, like, what's your secret? What's your marketing secret? I just had to, I kept thinking like, I, I don't know what, what it, am I doing something different than other people? Like, I don't even know what that would be. And I had a friend of mine who's a very, very beloved teacher, wonderful teacher in New York city who had several private clients, um, but confessed to me that he didn't really like teaching them because he couldn't ever decide what to do next. He was always like sweating. He couldn't tell if they liked it. Like he just felt kind of unsure in that realm. And I thought, huh, that's so interesting because he's a teacher I really looked up to. I learned a lot from. He's a very skillful teacher and working with people one-on-one just wasn't coming naturally to him, which made me realize that it had been coming naturally to me. But I also felt like what I was doing could be taught to other teachers. I happen to do it naturally, but they're teachable skills. So then I just started thinking about what I might be doing differently and like what I was doing. So I started writing the summer of 2012, what I intended to be like a three hour workshop that I could bring into 200 or 300 hour trainings about the special skills needed to teach one-on-one in a way that's really great for the student and sustainable for the teacher. By the time I finished writing that quote unquote three hour workshop, I realized that was not something that could be taught in three hours. And I taught it for the first time that fall. It's like a 40 hour training. So there's a lot there. Um, And yeah, so I've been teaching that since 2012, turned into the science of the private lesson. There's, I don't teach it in person, obviously right now, but there's an online version of it. So give us an overview of the broad brushstrokes of what are the skills that you teach in that training? The most important thing is that you have a commitment, an emotional commitment to meeting students where they are, which means that you are open to figuring out ways to make the most important teachings of yoga, the teachings that will be most helpful to your student accessible to them. So it doesn't mean holding to a really rigid, strict idea of what a yoga practice should look like, but being open to communicating the deep teachings in creative and accessible ways. So that's an important one. We spend a lot of time talking about what that means and how to do it. Can you give us an example? Here's a very simple one that I think is good to start with because people... I say that and people are like, yeah, no, of course. But then when I start giving examples, people are like, oh, but no, not like that. 
It's like, yes, like that. It means that if you have a student for whom Shavasana is a very stressful, uncomfortable experience, you don't do it with them. You can do, offer Shavasana replacements. We have in, in the sort of lingo of SPL, what's called the intended benefit. What is the intended benefit of the pose or the practice? If the pose that you're offering them isn't having the benefit that you intend, then you have to shift it or change it or do something entirely different. So if the benefit, the intended benefit of Shavasana is to practice resting, is to integrate all the work that you did, is to, what are some other benefits of Shavasana? Tell me. To acknowledge our mortality, which is kind of deep and intense and maybe not for every beginner student. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but if, if let's say they're doing their private yoga practice in the foyer, the hallway, between the kitchen and where all the bedrooms are, and it's seven o'clock in the morning and people are running back and forth from the kitchen to the hallway and they're too distracted to practice Shavasana or it makes them anxious or it feels like a waste of time. It's not gonna have the intended benefit of really quality rest. It's not gonna have the intended benefit of helping them integrate because they're anxious, because they're uncomfortable, because they feel vulnerable. So we do a Shavasana replacement because it's a very important part of the practice, but if the way that you were taught to teach it isn't working, then you have to do something else. So do a Shavasana replacement instead. Some people need a more active Shavasana. Um, so I don't mean like a, a replacement like legs up the wall. I mean a replacement like the most extreme example would be standing at the back of the mat, feet a little bit wide, a very slow roll down articulating through the vertebra of the spine into Uttanasana, pausing there, holding opposite elbows, taking a few breaths, feeling the grounding in the outside edge of the feet, a little lift of the inner arch, releasing the arms, very slowly rolling back up to stand, pelvis stacks on top of ankles, lung stack on top of pelvis, crown of the head floats up, shoulder blades melt down, a nice big breath in and out, and then we do it again, two or three times. I've used that as a Shavasana replacement. So I mean, really ex extreme difference from what you think the pose should look like. I imagine in that kind of a more busy, chaotic situation, you could even do like a Shavasana at the wall too, where you're leaning against the wall for support, but you're not in as vulnerable a position as you would be lying on the floor. I've never taught a private in a situation where there were other people in the room. I've always been able to have kind of a container when I've taught private. So I love hearing that. I love that creativity. And that's another, that's another important part that, I, that you mentioned is creating the container. That's something that you have to do in a private lesson that you don't have to do in a group class. So that's actually the first module is create the space. That's where we have to start because it's a skill that people haven't practiced if they've only taught in a, a yoga studio where there are rules about shoes and phones and the floor is clean and they're not going to be people bursting in. It's just very likely that the private lesson that you teach in someone's home, certainly, or in someone's office, which I used to do a lot as well, is not going to have that space. So that's where we start. We create the space. We talk about how to hold the space with skillful language. Then we move to the real heart of the work, which is meeting students where they are. 
Do you start with an intake ahead of time? What do you do at your first session? I know that you've probably evolved this over time, but I think this is such an important piece, especially with what you're talking about with meeting people where they are. What are the tools that help you determine where they are? So for intake, I get this question a lot about having an intake form. I do not have a like a really in-depth intake form because I find I get more information and better information when I do an intake verbally. So that's how we start. Depending on how they've found me, we may have had a conversation on the phone first. If they're coming directly through another client of mine or through a friend, we may just have some email back and forth and not really speak until we have our first session. But in any case, if we've spoken on the phone or not, I'll start the first session, of course, with a conversation about why they're interested in private yoga right now, their previous experience with yoga, if they have any, what's going on in their body. I also ask questions about like, um, other physical practices they're engaged in now or used to be engaged in. Like if someone used to run marathons four times a year and they don't run it all now, like that's good information for me to have. Tells you a little something about the kind of physical practice they used to engage in. They're not doing that now. So kind of like what's going on there. So I'll ask questions about their current physical practice, any past physical practices, same with like injuries and discomforts. And that's usually enough information to get us started. I just find I get more information in the intake when they're telling a story, when I can ask follow-up questions than if it's just like a online form. And I take notes while they do that, while we do that. So you do an intake and it's in person and then you get started moving. Do you have like a movement assessment that you do, or is this something that you're kind of creating rapidly in your brain during the intake? I have a few go-to things I like to start with, but the physical abilities of my students vary quite widely. I have students who are longtime yoga practitioners and avid athletes. And I have students who are very more limited in their physical abilities, who can sit in a chair, who can lie down, who can't do standing work, who can't be on their hands and knees. So obviously I don't have one thing that I do with everyone. Most likely I'm going to start people on their back just to have a kind of less vulnerable, but more grounded place to start. One thing that I often tell teachers is Certainly not with people who are new to me or new to yoga. I would never have them start sitting upright with their legs crossed and their eyes closed. It's just a very vulnerable, often uncomfortable place for people to start. So I'm much more likely to start people on their back where I can sit right next to them and talk to them as we're moving or breathing or wherever it is that we're starting. So beyond being on your back, tell, tell us about some other of your go-to beginning places that you start with people. And if you want to, you can say, okay, so for somebody with really limited mobility, these are my go-tos. And for somebody who's more athletic, here's what I do. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I'm looking for as people are, we're getting into their practice is how well they're able to take movement instruction and apply it to their body and how much they like or don't like having to do that. So there's quite a variety, you know, 
um, of people who like specific subtle movement instruction, people who are very overwhelmed by it. So that's really what I'm doing when we're starting. Maybe we do bridge pose. Maybe we have them bring their knees to their chest. Maybe they hold onto the back of one thigh and circle their ankle. Maybe we do a version of like soup to pee where they're holding onto the back of their thigh and reaching their heel up. So those are just like anything you can do on your back is probably where I'm starting. But one of the main things I'm listening and looking for is how, like how used to, or how able they are to take movement instruction and connect it to their kinesthetic experience. And that'll then determine like, you know, how I talk to them. Cause I want to talk to them in a way that they understand that makes sense to them. That isn't stressful or overwhelming. So do you start with really simple instructions and then start layering more detail in and just kind of pay attention to subtle cues about when it seems like they're getting to the point of overwhelm? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask them too, like, was that too many words? Like, was that too many things? Or is what I'm saying makes sense? This is feedback I give to people all the time in my teacher training. Be more direct. Teachers all the time say to me, I don't know. I can't tell if they like it. I can't tell if they understand. Just really can't read them. I'm like, just ask them directly. It does what I'm saying makes sense. If it doesn't, you just have to set up from, from the outset that this is a place for dialogue. If they like that, they don't have to, if they hate it. I've had student, I had a student really once say to me, seriously, with all these questions, Francesca, I was like, okay, back off fewer questions, but I really go and tell people or tell me to stop because the more information I have, the better, both about what they're experiencing physically and, and to make sure that what I'm saying is there being, is being understood the way I intend it. When I taught more privates, I would have certain ways of talking to people in their bodies. Like for example, one of the thing, one of my go-tos is to ask them, does that feel easier, harder, or the same, right? So there's this A, B, or C. It's not clear that I have an agenda. It's really like, I'm interested in your experience. So that, that's like one of my go-tos. What are yours? Yeah, I mean, that's a good framework. That's really how I ask almost all my questions is to make it very clear that while I have a general intended benefit of the pose, there's not one thing that they're supposed to be feeling. And the most important thing is that they communicate to me what they're experiencing. So I'll frame things like that a lot. Like I'll say, what if you try, try moving your hand over here? Now, did that make it better or did that make it worse? Really tell me, you know? And so I just, you often do have to teach people how to A, either understand what they're experiencing in their body and or B, how to communicate it. And it's, it's something that can be taught. It just takes time. And I think as you're saying to like, really set up a framework of like, it could feel like X, it could feel like Y, let's really like unpack this. I mean, another thing that, I, that teachers will do a lot is ask the student, how does this feel? And if all they say is fine, you're not getting that much information. So this is again, why we come back to the intended benefit of the pose. So a given pose could have lots of potential benefits. It's not like it's just for one thing, but you want to have a, a general idea of the positive things that you think that they might get from this pose. So rather than saying, you could start with, how does this feel? Actually, it's not a bad way to start because then some people are like, oh, I 
feel this here and I feel that there. And they are actually very specific in what they feel and how they can communicate that. So then you don't need to feed them that. You can just let them talk, which is probably better. So it's fine to start like that. But if you don't get the information that you need, then you have to be more clear. So let's say Anjaneyasana, like a lunge with the back knee down, kind of a little bit of a back bend in the spine. If you say, how does this feel? And they say, fine. And you're not sure that, you know, that it really is fine <laughs> or that it really is useful. Then you'd say, okay, here's what I was thinking you might feel here. You might feel like a stretch in the front of the hip of your back leg, might feel some work in your right thigh. Uh, maybe you feel a little stretch in the back of your right thigh, which is the front leg, kind of list a few of the things that might be good. And then you could also say, because sometimes people will say, no, I don't really feel any of that. Say, okay, another thing that you could be feeling is like a feeling of compression or pinching in the crease of your front hip. So, and then they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what I feel. So then it's like, okay, well, it's not dangerous, but it's not the intended benefit. So let's see if we can shift some things around so you get the intended benefit of the pose. Have you found that a lot of people you work with are very disconnected from their bodies and struggle at first to verbalize what they're feeling? I, I'm just thinking like too much of my five-year-old right now. She's very in her body, right? She's, but it's so natural that she doesn't, she doesn't really know how to talk about it. And it's even like it's the same with her day. Like she's so in the present moment, be like, how was your day at school? She's like, I don't know. I was just in it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how to talk about it. And so I find that a lot of people who don't practice movement, who aren't movers end up having a similar experience with their bodies where they, it's like, they only know how to talk about it. If something's wrong, if they're in pain, they can talk about it, but otherwise they're not really paying attention. I just wonder if you have a similar experience with your clients and what strategies you have used to give them that language or to invite them into that experience, if you think that's even important. My experience has been extremely diverse. And that's what I want teachers to keep in mind is to not make assumptions about people's relationship to their body um, because people will really surprise you. Like I said, I have students who are extremely physically able and much less able and everything in between. I, I teach about 17 private students a week right now. And all of them are able to describe, relate, experience their body in such wildly diverse and vastly different ways. So you might think like, oh, the able-bodied athlete like really is in their body, can talk about it. The person who can't stand or be on their knees, like they probably don't, but that's just not true. Like I've just seen just a very diverse kind of range of people. And so I think it's just that's my note of caution for teachers is not to assume that one kind of body is going to be able to describe it in one kind of way or not. I've definitely had students who only know how to describe their body around discomfort. That's very common, but I've had lots of students who describe their body in like beautiful, poetic, artistic ways. So it's just fascinating. And I think every single person is very, very different. And it's our job to understand, to start to learn about them and understand what kind of kinesthetic awareness they have, what kind of communication skills they have, 
and then work with that. I'm curious what you think the benefits of teaching privates are versus group classes. I know that we've already established that both are awesome and that you love doing both. And yet they are different and they might be a good fit for different people. So what do you think made you such a great fit for teaching privates? And who do you think should think about bringing that into their teaching practice? I think teaching private students is a great experience for all teachers if they're open to it. Just this morning, I had a question in my membership community, the mentor session Sangha about this. A teacher said, I've been teaching group classes. I love it. I've never taught a private student. I'm not really that interested in teaching private students, but it's something that we end up talking about a lot in, in the mentor session Sangha. She's like, so listening to all these conversations is making me feel like maybe I should try. And so this is what I said to her, you know, you don't have to, if you don't want to, if you really hate the idea, there's no reason that you have to, but it's a wonderful place to, it's a wonderful challenge to put yourself in as a teacher. I think the more challenging teaching situations we put ourselves in, the better we become. So that's always like used to be one of my first homework assignments for teachers who mentor with me. If they had never taught in a gym setting, I told them they had to go get a job teaching at a gym because that can be really hard. You know, you're like on some weird floor and you don't really have props and there's like loud music. So that's good. That's good for your teaching to teach somewhere that's hard to teach. Same with private students. It's a very different kind of teaching. And so you'll learn a lot. So I think anybody should try it. And if you like it, it's a wonderful way to grow as a teacher. And it's also can be a great, you know, source of income for teachers as well. So what made me a good fit? I think that I value communication and dialogue and relationship. And I really see teaching as relationship. So I never liked the kind of teaching where I was up on a pedestal, you know, that's just like not who I am. And I just don't think that that's where the best teaching comes from. So I think you need to be in relationship with students to really be able to teach them. You can do it in a group class, but it's harder. So I really thrived when I got in the environment where there was a lot of dialogue possible, a lot of creativity, and a lot of, I felt, space for me to not know answers, but support and direct inquiry. Mm, I love that. Is there anything else about teaching privates that we haven't covered yet today that you want to make sure that you share or anything that you want to emphasize? Hmm. There's a lot. I mean, one thing that I, one of the frameworks that I teach that people have found really helpful is called the support challenge matrix. And that is something I, I devised to help teachers figure out what they wanted to focus on with their students. Because I think that's one of the things that can be so overwhelming about teaching private students is there is such a vast practice to pull from. Like, how do you decide what to focus on? So the support challenge matrix looks at four different things that will show up in a yoga practice. Physical support, physical challenge, emotional support, and emotional challenge. And every single thing that you teach your student will fall into one of those four categories. Students will respond very, very differently to those four categories.
categories. So in the beginning of a private student relationship, I think it's very helpful to focus almost entirely on the things that they respond very well to. And then as you build a relationship and as their trust in you grows, and as they become more engaged in the yoga practice as a whole, you can start to bring in the elements that they find more challenging. But I have a podcast episode about this. I have like a lot of resources about this. So I know that that's just like a little quick thing. Um, So people can dive deeper. We can link to those resources if you want. We definitely will do that. This is such a great matrix. What are the signs that you look for to know that people are ready to be pushed a little more? Well, a lot of it is based on the relationship. Is there trust there? You know, are they really telling you how they feel and and what they're experiencing? Or do they seem like they're holding back? Because if they're holding back, then they don't trust you yet. And it's probably not time to push them. But if you feel like they're really being fully honest with you, then you can also just say, I think that meditation practice, you know, I know that that's not something you feel that excited about. I know that you think it's kind of hard and boring, but I think you're ready to be pushed a little bit to try. Could we try five minutes today and be totally open about what you're thinking and totally direct and see what they say. Because if they're just, if the relationship is there, then they'll say either, oh God, please don't make me do that. And then, okay, maybe you don't today. Or they'll say, fine, if you think I should try, trust you, let's try. And then you try and see what happens. And I, just a note is I found a lot of good success having those kind of conversations in a very, almost like casual, warm way, very friendly. So it's, so it doesn't feel so like I'm your teacher, you know, do I have permission to push you? But like, Hey, I'm kind of thinking we should try this. What do you think? And just throw it out there in a very casual vibe. I think like I've had a very good response from students mixing very clear professionalism, clear boundaries around time and money and very friendly, very warm, almost casual kind of interaction back and forth. I think that's made people feel like I'm professional. I charge them once a month, you know, like that's all very clear. There's not wishy-washiness about that, which is something we didn't touch, but that in my like in-person training is a full eight-hour day boundaries. So we can talk a little bit about that if you want, but you know, there's like very clear professional boundaries, but then the interaction is very, very friendly. And like I said, almost casual. And I think that has been honestly like a big part of my success. So it's something I recommend to the teachers listening, if that feels natural and genuine to you. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, clearly it's worked for you, but it kind of on an intuitive level, it really makes sense because I'm so glad you brought up the boundaries and the payment. A lot of yoga teachers shoot themselves in the foot by being wishy-washy about asking for money, about what they charge, about, you know, asking for on-time payment, about allowing people to cancel sessions at the last minute, things like that. It sets you up as not professional, and then you're not as valued for what you provide. So I really love what you said, and I'd love for you to speak on that a little bit about how important it is and how it actually builds the trust relationship, right? I think a lot of times there's a story in our heads that like, if I ask for money, if I charge too much, whatever the story is, 
that it's going to erode the trust. It's going to, it's going to damage the relationship, but I think it's the opposite. And I'd love to hear your experience. Yeah. hundred percent. I've identified seven different kinds of boundaries, so we won't go through them all, but the first two are what I would consider like your root chakra boundaries. And those are the boundaries of time and money. And then from there it expands. And so then there's the boundary of them sharing information about themselves with you and how you handle that quick and dirty version is the more information you have about them, the better. Then there's you sharing information about yourself with them. Quick and dirty version of that is frankly, the more you can keep about yourself private, the better, I think, learn the hard way and so on. So we have all these these other kind of boundaries. If you do not have the root chakra boundaries of time and money clear, you have absolutely no hope for the rest of the boundaries and your ability to be a good teacher will be damaged. It is vital to the health and professionalism of a student teacher relationship that your boundaries of money and your boundaries of time are airtight. Well said. I have one other question. It's a little out of order. That's just the nature of a podcast interview. Do you give your clients homework? If they want it, this is what is like paramount to my approach. It is so, so individually tailored. Everything about the way I teach someone from what I do in a first session to the kind of cues that I give to how many questions I ask, to how much I talk to them, to how much I ask them to talk to me, to whether or not they have homework. It is completely different person to person. So some people I have suggested, you know, like if you wanted to do one thing every day, I think this would be good. And then I see how they respond. Some people jump on that. They're like, oh, okay, great. Let me get a piece of paper and make some notes. Then I know that that's something they're interested in. And I do more of that. If they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I should think about that. Then I just let it go. It's a hundred percent driven by their curiosity, their engagement, and what's helpful for them. So it really runs the gamut where I like have one student who last time I saw him, we went through all of the things that he does in his daily routine. And he showed me how he was doing them. Some of them are like PT exercises. Some of them are asana. Some of them are meditation kind of like went through all of them and made, he made detailed updated notes about all the things he was doing regularly. Some people I would never, ever do that. They're not interested. To be honest, like my Pilates teacher, who I love, who listens to this podcast, will be like, okay, this is what you should do for your homework. And I almost never do it. I just like, my time for Pilates is when I'm with her and I love it and it's so great. There's like one or two things that I really like that if I'm on my mat, I'll do a little bit of, but mostly I don't do it. So, you know, it's like, if someone's not gonna do it, A, I would never want them to feel guilty because- if they feel guilty, that damages the interpersonal relationship. Me and their practice are a soft place for them to land whenever they need it. So I do encourage people when it seems like it'll be helpful to do things regularly, but I never push people. Not on that. I just don't think it's necessary. I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess part of my mind is thinking about people who have a specific goal and are unrealistic about the amount of time it's going to take to achieve that goal if they're only working on it once a week. Is that Mm -hmm. something that you just have an upfront conversation with them? Like, I've heard you have this goal. I'm not sure that this goal is achievable with a once a week practice. 
Yeah, I probably wouldn't say it like that because okay. I don't want it to sound like I'm a scolding teacher. I really, okay. really stay away from that. I am their friend and their guide on the path and I'm a soft place to land hundred percent of the time. So if someone, I mean, I haven't really, I don't run into that a lot. I used to a little bit more in my teaching practice in New York. Like I did have a student who really wanted to be able to do handstand, but we didn't have like a time frame set up because you can't, you can't. Okay. This is not a question I get a lot. So I want to just address this really briefly. Teachers ask all the time, how do you measure progress with private students? And I don't, I don't think it's necessary. There's not really like linear progress, I think, that can be found, honestly, in an asana practice or a yoga practice at large. So the only kind of progress that I'm interested in is how engaged my students are. That's the only thing I care about, because if they're engaged, their practice will be there for them as a soft place to land no matter what's going on in their life, because there are old there, like I've had several years, several year long periods when I couldn't practice asana at all, but I still had my practice still there for me. And I still engaged with it with care, you know, and I've had that with students too. I've had students who had physical stuff going on. We started an asana practice and then we did almost no asana for a year or two. And then it's slowly coming back, you know, so Okay. So those are my thoughts about progress. Linear progress is like not really a thing. So I don't really care about it. If a student had a very specific goal, I would say like, yeah, a hundred percent, let's work on that. So I had a student in New York who wanted to be able to do handstand, but I would never promise a student like, well, if you do this for this long X result will happen because we just don't know that about people's bodies. So I would never promise a time frame. But I would just say, like, here are the benchmarks. Here are the things that you need to be able to do to do that. Like, I actually have a student now I'm working on who has been wanting to do wheel for two years. And so I talked him through, like, here are the physical benchmarks. Your arms and shoulders need to be able to do this. Your wrists need to be able to do this. So here are the things that we're working on to work on that goal. And I, would, I just would try at all costs to avoid a time frame. And if they asked one, I would say, I don't know, a year, maybe two years. These are the things that have to happen. But I would avoid like a time-based progress goal at all costs because it's a guess at best. Interesting. So if a, a student were throwing it out there to you, you would just say something like, I'll be happy to support you in trying that. And I can't make any promises or something like that. Yeah, I would say like, if someone said, I want to be able to do a wheel by my 50th birthday. And we had a year to work on it. I'd say like, okay, awesome. Like, let's get to work. Let's see what happens here. Here are the benchmarks. And then they'll see if the benchmarks are not coming in eight months, they'll know it might not happen. That's okay. We have the rest of our lives. Yeah. And I really, what I'm really kind of getting from the through line, the thread of this conversation is that piece about the private session being about the relationship more so even than the yoga practice, that the yoga practice is almost the container for this relationship that is nourishing to the student. 
Absolutely. And I think you could look at it in the opposite way as well. The relationship is the container for the yoga practice to ebb and th flow and thrive and and kind of crumble. And like, that's what it will do. Your yoga practice, teachers listening, if this hasn't already happened to you, like pieces of it will come and go. Parts of it will get strong and, and parts of it you'll let go of. And I think that's what it's supposed to do. I don't think we're supposed to have the same practice for all seasons of our life. So the relationship as the container allows for that ebbing and flowing to take place that's natural in the practice. And that's really something that we can model for our students. And I think that it's good for them and their practice. And I think it's good for our business too, frankly, is that your practice will ebb and flow. So like if a student's like, oh, you know, I'm really, I'm going to be jet lagged that day. I should probably cancel. I won't be up to my active practice. I really try not to let people do that. I'm like, well, no, I think we should definitely practice. We'll just do something different. We'll do something to help you reset your nervous system and try to overcome the jet lag. So we just, of course, no, we won't do your normal active practice, but no reason not to practice yoga. There's always something we can do. And I really try to instill that in my students. Well said. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to close. So if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go? The best place for them to go would be teachprivateyoga.com. That's a, a landing page where you'll get access to a video series I've created about teaching private clients, as well as access and an invitation to the Mentor Session Sangha, which is my membership community. Um, and you can also find my website, francescacervero.com. We could put links to that in the show notes. We definitely will. Thank you so much, Francesca. This has been really fascinating and useful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. So I really feel like Francesca over delivered on both the big picture and also really practical, useful tips in that interview. I mean, the support challenge matrix, so good and so useful. So I'm curious, after listening to this episode, especially for those of you who weren't sure about private lessons before, do you feel excited and inspired to teach some private lessons? If you have feedback about this episode or any episode, you can email me at mado at teachingyoga.net to share your thoughts. I might take a while to respond. I can't always respond immediately, but I do read every email that I get. And I absolutely love to hear from my listeners. Another completely free way that you can help support the show is by going on iTunes and leaving a review. I also pay very close attention to those. And thank you to the people who have left reviews recently. It definitely inspires me to keep going when I read the positive feedback and the really supportive comments there. This was a relatively long episode, so I'm going to keep this outro short and sweet. But before I go, I do want to take a moment to cheer you on in making time for your personal yoga practice. As Francesca mentioned during the interview, what that looks like is really flexible. The important thing is to think of it as a relationship that you don't want to neglect. It can definitely ebb and flow in intensity and duration, but make it a priority over the long term. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.